Increment 198 of Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, and it is rocket science. We're going to be going to Hebrews 7.18 to pick up where we sort of left off last time. I'm giving the same warning as I did in our last increment. The notes or the PDF that appears on the website may not strictly correspond to the spoken message today because, again, I'm developing some new things that are kind of new in my mind. They're being born at the present time, created now, as Isaiah 48, 7 says. So it's sort of a, to use a gemologist analogy, a rough cut stone or a rough cut gem right now. So, Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to do the most important thing we can do in this life, and that is to look into the mirror of your word, where we see clearly, more and more clearly reflected the image of the Lord, into whose image we are being conformed. Here a little, there a little, line upon line. And so we entrust our spirit to you, God of faithfulness and God of truth. We also commit our soul to you, our faithful creator, and we present our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, so reasonable now because of the willing offering of the body of our great archpriest to you. And we do so in Jesus' name, amen. We're taking a look at the remainder of the chapter and kind of a passing glance over the horizon of the rest of this chapter 7 and into 8.1 just to get a view of the lay of the land as it were and also to get an idea of the horizon before us and to see how the homily is developing and the argument within it is developing. And we're going to bring in an analogy today. This is something that is of a kind of language that the scriptural writers did not use, but it can be used on the level of our own time. And it will be an analogy from rocket science. So... Contrary to what you hear almost ad nauseum from people who want to say something simply, it's not rocket science. I'm saying it is rocket science. We're going to use that analogy. But let's begin by looking at the scripture, my translation so far, Hebrews 7:18. For on the one hand, there was an annulment of the previous commandment. That's speaking of the commandment that had to do with the genealogical or physical requirements of the priests and archpriests of the Levitical order, there was an annulment of that because it was weak and useless. And of course that means weak and useless only in comparison with the power of an indestructible life by which a priest forever and of another order and a new order became a superior priest that rendered that old commandment annulled. It annulled it. 
and it reveals it to be weak and useless. It had no power to bring people into a profound and real relationship to God. Verse 19, for the law made nothing complete. As we've seen before, the moral code of the law and doing the works of the law didn't bring anyone justified, nor does the cultic praxis of the priests of the Old Testament bring anyone into true sanctification. And there was no real satisfaction in those offerings, as we'll see again down the road. On the other hand, there is the introduction of a better hope, that is, a better expectation of perfection, of sanctification, and of righteousness before God, through which we draw near to God. That better hope is rooted in Jesus Christ and him crucified, the once and for all self-sacrifice of the one who is not only a priest forever, but the victim, the offerer and the offering, the priest and the lamb. And in verse 20, none of this happened without the taking of an oath. For on the one hand, men became priests without an oath. The Old Testament priests were made priests without an oath, and therefore their ordaining as priests or their ordination as priests and their anointing as priests was not accompanied by an oath. But Jesus, when he was declared and we could say ordained and anointed as priest, his ordination, his appointment, his declaration by God to be a priest was accompanied by an oath. The oracle by which he was pronounced a priest forever was fortified by an oath. So it's contrary to the weak commandment of the law by which men became priests of the Levitical order. So once again, none of this happened without the taking of an oath. For on the one hand, men became priests without an oath. That's the Levitical priest. But on the other hand, he, Jesus, through the oath of the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now I mentioned Recently, 717 contains the last reference to the name Melchizedek. And there's a reason for that. The quotation of Psalm 110.4 and the allusion to Psalm 110.4, 109.4, the Septuagint, was made many times in Hebrews. This time it is made without including the name of Melchizedek. Because why? Because this is all about we see Jesus, a priest forever. We, do, we can now eject the stage of the rocket named Melchizedek. Now, rocket science, let's talk about it. There is, in the launching of a rocket into space, to perform a certain mission, there is a primary stage of the rocket. And that first stage gets the rocket off the launching pad and 
it propels the rocket into space and provides the initial thrust to send the rocket skyward towards space, we could say. The secondary stage, which comes after the primary stage, oddly enough, it's not rocket science. Oh, yes it is, it is rocket science. Secondary stage occurs when the primary stage has fallen away. Now the secondary stage of the study of the priest forever is now what we're seeing right now with beginning with 721. Really with 717, but 721 because we have the priest forever, but we don't have Melchizedek because that is the primary stage that got us this far, but now it falls away. It's exhausted its fuel. It's done its work. Now we look away from Melchizedek unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Because if I remember right, the name of our present series is We See Jesus. The next rocket engine continues the rocket on its trajectory. And this secondary stage of the rocket, of the spacecraft, is followed by a third stage called the payload. And when the second stage has done its work, then the payload comes in. That means the part of the spaceship that fulfills its mission. That's the one with human beings inside it. Or with the kind of robotic mechanics that are needed to perform a mission on a certain planet like Mars or Neptune or maybe on the moon. The rocket payload can be a space probe or it can be a satellite that orbits. But the main thing about the payload, it's the part of the spaceship that performs the mission. So in our analogy, a rough one so far, Melchizedek is the name of the primary stage. It's launched this rocket into a trajectory. And at 717 and then especially 720, that stage falls away. It's exhausted its fuel and it's gone. The secondary stage is the revelation of Jesus as the priest forever without consideration to Melchizedek but with appreciation that the prefiguration by Melchizedek got us to this point to see him as the priest forever. The payload is when we get to the once and for all self-offering of this priest forever by which we were sanctified and by which we were perfected and by which the sin of the world was taken away, the world was reconciled to God, redemption that is in Christ Jesus was performed and that's the performance of the mission which really goes to divine mission number one the mission of the Son, which was to save the world. And he did so 
by the judge being judged on behalf of us or by the priest representing us and offering himself on behalf of us. So we noted in a previous increment that Hebrews 7.17 contained the last mention of Melchizedek by name. But here we have another partial quotation of Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, in which the whole verse is given except after the order of Melchizedek. The reason for this is that Jesus as a priest forever is to be the main subject now for concentrated consideration from here on in. Melchizedek as a stage of the soaring rocket of revelation in Hebrews is now ejected. And Jesus alone is the focus as the priest forever. From here on out, we are to look away from Melchizedek and unto Jesus whom he prefigured. We see not Melchizedek now, but Jesus. And again, Melchizedek was a necessary first stage in the rocket of the revelation of Jesus as archpriest. It burned through the powered ascent of this disclosure and then was extinguished. Some people would call this a self-consuming document. The second stage reveals Jesus alone. The payload stage reveals the universal saving efficacy of his sacrifice, a truth that is allowed to remain forever in orbit, as it were, over us. Melchizedek was not a priest and an offering. He was a priest, but he was not a priest and an offering. Melchizedek did not offer himself as a sacrifice by which all the world would be reconciled to God in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Jesus is that priest, and Jesus is that offering. For he appeared once in the end of the ages, or at the junction of the ages, to put away sin by the offering of himself. He did this once, from the foundation of the world, not many times. Hebrews 9.26, ICW, in connection with Revelation 13.8. And that's a whole other study, a comparison of Revelation with Hebrews. We've seen the marriage of Romans and Hebrews in a very slight way. But the marriage of Revelation in Hebrews may even be more profound. Maybe that would be a study either for me down the road or for someone else to pick up. Priests and the priest will still be the subject of Hebrews. There will be a comparison of the priests and the archpriest and the day of Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement especially will be the focus. So there will still be priests and the priest in conjunction with each other in, in a law of comparison and contrast or similarity and dissimilarity. So priests and the priest will still be the subject of Hebrews from here on in. But Melchizedek recedes. 
Just like John the baptizer who said, I must decrease, but he must increase. Melchizedek, time for him to decrease and for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to increase. Melchizedek recedes, while the comparison contrast of Jesus the priest and the Levitical priest and archpriest and their offerings still continues. In fact, it continues all the way to Hebrews 10.14. And then some, really, because we get into some more sacerdotal or cultic language in all the way up into Hebrews 13, 11, and 12. And 13, for that matter. And 15 also, and 16, for that matter. Now, once again, William L. Lane is helpful here. He, he says, Melchizedek's sudden appearance and equally sudden disappearance from recorded history evoke the notion of eternity, which was only prefigured in Melchizedek, but was realized in Christ. Consequently, Melchizedek foreshadowed the priesthood of Christ at the point where it is most fundamentally different from the Levitical priesthood. And that's a correct observation, of course. But I would also say that as Melchizedek suddenly appears and disappears suddenly in the Old Testament, he suddenly appears also in Hebrews 7.1, and then suddenly disappears in Hebrews 7.21. And I've likened this to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, and I think that's an apt comparison. Like Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, who disappear when we look up, like the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, we see Jesus only. And we hear the Father say, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am completely pleased. Listen to him. That was a sharp rebuke to all of us, but especially Peter, because in Matthew 16, Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. God forbid that you would go and be crucified in Jerusalem. He wasn't listening to Jesus. About He wasn't listening. The church with all its fanfare and entertainment today and all of its calls to call in, I wonder how many of us are really listening to him. I must go to Jerusalem as it was prophesied of me. I must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer, be crucified, and raised again the third day. And I wonder if we're still listening to him and listening to the spirit of Jesus. Tell us about the universally saving significance of that event. When we look up, we see Jesus alone now. I said, we see Jesus. 
Hebrews 7.22, by so much then, Jesus, Jesus, by so much then, Jesus, always in an emphatic position whenever the name Jesus is found, Jesus. Jesus, by so much then Jesus was made the guarantor, anguas, anguas. Now we know he's the mediator, mesites, here he's the anguas, guarantor is a good translation. Could also be guarantee, not T-E-E, -E, but T-Y, guarantee, G-U-R-A-N-T-Y. By so much then, Jesus was made the guarantor of a better covenant. You see how he introduces the better covenant? He strikes a note in this symphonic development of a homily that comes into a crescendo in Hebrews chapter 8 and again in Hebrews 10 where there is a strong accent on another passage of scripture, this time not from the Psalms, this time not from the Pentateuch or the law, this time from the prophets, specifically the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Septuagint 38, 31 to 34. So he introduces the theme of a better covenant, a better hope in 719, a better covenant in 722. He will call that covenant new and better, and he will call it everlasting in Hebrews 13.20. Because the God of peace brought up from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, on account of the blood of an everlasting covenant. So by so much then, Jesus was made the guarantor, anguas, or anguas, of a better covenant. And of course, again, this theme introduced here is elaborated upon in Hebrews 8, 6, all the way through 1017, even though it's not exclusively dealt with in that passage, it is dealt with within that whole horizon. Guarantor, then, again, is angoas, and it means, in the Latin Vulgate, it's actually translated as sponsor, or it appears as the word sponsor in the Latin. It means that Jesus serves here, though, as a pledge or a guarantee of God to humanity. But it also means a pledge of humanity to God that the covenant in question is fulfilled. Jesus is the unilateral fulfillment of the new covenant. He stands in for human beings in that we do not live the kind of lives yet that perfectly manifest the effect of God's laws written on our hearts. Let me say that again. We do not yet manifest in our living, in our livingness, in our lives. We don't perfectly manifest the effect of God's laws written on our hearts. But until we do in resurrection, Jesus does for us. 
He is the guarantee that all of humanity will one day live perfectly in accord with the inward will of God. And that's not as automatons. That's as people who say, with Jesus, I am willing. A cheerful willingness to love one another. And we will have unlimited freedom within that sphere of love. So it's not the willingness of automatons. It's a free willingness. Jesus is the guarantee that all of humanity will one day live perfectly in accord with the inward will of God and do so willingly and cheerfully, even joyously, because of what? Because of the absence of the old man who was consumed in the burnt offering. By analogy, he was consumed by the fire of God when Jesus was made to be sin. And so we will all one day live perfectly in accord with the inward will of God and do so willingly, even joyously, because of the absence of the old man, the false self, and the unhindered presence and power of God's spirit in every person. The pulling out of the old stony heart and the replacement of it with the heart of flesh and the placement inside of every person, the spirit of God, to cause us to walk according to God's ordinances of love. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Jesus has already done this for us in the days of his flesh. And now, as the priest at God's right hand, he's also the pledge to God that all of humanity will live like this. And he's also the pledge of assurance from God to humanity that this will be so. So briefly, let's look at Hebrews 7.23 and following. On top of this, on the one hand, many became priests. He's going to introduce the idea of this many as a kind of weakness as opposed to the one, one and only, the unique, the one, the only, the exclusive in which there's strength. There's strength and power in one. There is a diminution of power in the idea of many in this case. And so he uses the idea of many versus one and only one. On top of this, on the one hand, many, and that's the same many who are made priests without an oath, many became priests by reason of death, preventing them from continuing indefinitely in office at a limitation called death. Can't be a priest forever. Why? Because you're going to die. And when you die, you'll pass the baton to your descendant. Verse 24, but he, here's the contrast, but he, meaning Jesus, the priest forever. See, I don't have to say after the order of Melchizedek, I can just say the priest forever. But he, Jesus the priest forever, on the other hand, because he remains forever, still an allusion to Psalm 110.4, 
has a permanent. The Greek word there is aparabaton. I think you will see that in the notes. Aparabaton. A permanent priesthood means one incapable of passing away. Aparabaton is a synonym of amatathaton used in Hebrews 6.17 and amatathaton in Hebrews 6.20. One has an omicron O, the other omega O. And so verse 24, but he on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a permanent priesthood. And the word aparabaton also means, interestingly the word baton is found in there, even though it's not what it means, but the word baton, we could even say, he has a priesthood that is not the, re not the result of a baton being passed to him, nor does he ever pass the baton to another. It's aparabaton. Now that's just my little word play. That's not what the Greek actually means, but it's just helpful to our understanding. But he, on the other hand, because he remains, remains forever, has a permanent or incapable of passing away priesthood. But that also means non-transferable. That priesthood is not transferable to someone else. Someone else is never, no one else is ever going to become this priest forever, this archpriest forever. Nobody. So I'll translate it again. 723, my working translation so far. On top of this, on the one hand, many become priests. That is in the Levitical side of things. By reason of death, preventing them from continuing indefinitely in office. But he, on the other hand, because he remains forever, has a permanent, non-transferable priesthood. Therefore, here comes soteriology. Here comes the soteriology of Hebrews. Here comes the salvation part. 25, he is able to save completely those who come through him to God. Not those who come through animal sacrifices offered by Levitical priests to God, but those who come to God through the once and for all forever priest, Jesus Christ. See it? Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come through him to God. He lives to make intercession for them always. Now, those who come through him to God is ultimately all of humanity. Jesus said some things that made people not want to follow him anymore. He said, nobody comes to me unless the Father draws him. And nobody goes to the Father except through me. You read verses like John 6.44, John 6.65, and then 6.66, many followed him no more. They want to have something to do with it, you see. So first, no one comes to God the Father except through Jesus. John 14.6 also. Second, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him or her. 
Third, all whom God draws to the Son will come to him. Fourth, the Son does only what he sees the Father do. And the Son draws all to himself in John 12, 32. So if the Son does what the Father does, and the Son draws all to himself, then the Father draws all to the Son. And all will come to the Father through the Son. That's called biblical logic, and I like it. It's Johannine logic from the Gospel of John. Therefore, the Father draws all to the Son and through the Son to the Father. So when we're talking about those who come to God the Father through the Son, we're talking about all of humanity whom Jesus saves to the uttermost, which means to the place of full and total sanctification, spirit, soul, and body in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which means all that he justified, he also glorified in Romans 8.30. He justifies, he glorifies. Everyone whom God justifies, he glorifies. But he justifies all, according to Romans 5.18. So he glorifies all. And the glorification of all is the salvation of all to the uttermost. Or the salvation of all completely. So that they are justified, rectified, reconciled, redeemed, and made perfect before God. Hebrews 7.26 This is the kind of archpriest that's fitting for us. Aaron wasn't fitting for us. There wasn't satisfaction through what he offered. This is the kind of priest that's satisfying for us. Not Melchizedek himself because he wasn't an offering and a priest, just a priest. Jesus is the priest in an offering. That's fitting for us. This is the kind of archpriest that is fitting for us. One who is holy and blameless. The word blameless here is the word akakos, A-K-A-K-O-S, which is kakos for degenerate or evil with the alpha privative. So it means innocent. And it's used of an innocent lamb in Jer Jeremiah 11:19, So here is an inference of the Lamb of God, which is cultic language, which is sacerdotal language. He is the Lamb of God and the consummate sacrifice. All the offerings, whether it's a turtle dove or a turtle doves, whether it's young bulls or red heifers or lambs or rams, all those are all typifying or prefiguring one who is the Lamb of God. He's called the Lamb of God, but his consummate sacrifice fulfills all of the typology of all the sacrifices offered under the Levitical orders and under the Levitical prescriptions. 
This is the kind of archpriest that's fitting for us, one who's holy and blameless, separate from sinners. Separate from sinners here means, of course, that he's impeccable and sinless, as Hebrews 4.15 already established. But it also means that he is unlike the Levitical priests who were sinners and who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of their family and then for the sins of Israel. Separate from sinners means that Jesus, this unique priest, is separate from the Levitical priests because he, unlike them, is sinless. And that's borne out and verified or affirmed in the very next verse. So this is the kind of a priest that's fitting for us, one who's holy and blameless, separate from sinners. And I think they're referring specifically here to the Levitical priests and archpriests who were sinners. So there's a continuity of a theme here being a comparison contrast between Jesus' priesthood and the Levitical priesthood in which Jesus' priesthood is demonstrated to be infinitely superior. If you don't like the word infinitely, substantially or substantively, meaning that it's reality as opposed to shadow. Let me back up slightly into 726 and read my translation of it through 728 and the conclusion of the chapter. This is the kind of archpriest that's fitting for us, one who is holy and blameless, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. You can compare that with Ephesians 121 for that term, above the heavens. So what is there above the heavens? Well, a holy of holies, a heaven of heavens, something unimaginable. Never underestimate the power of scriptural correlations and comparison of spiritual with spiritual. Verse 27, who has no need to offer daily as the archpriest. That goes all the way up into Hebrews 10, 11 and 12, by the way. Who has no need to offer daily as the archpriests of the Levitical order do, or the priests of the Levitical order do. First, for his own sins... Why? Because he's without sin. He's separate from sinners. And then for the sins of the people, yeah, he did that. The only thing he did in the cross is to offer for the sins of the people, not for his own sins. It was never for himself. Messiah never acted for himself. Never acted for himself. It's always for us. And always for his father. This he fulfilled once for all. Once for all. That means he fulfilled this once and for all sacrifice for sins for the archpriests and for the priests and for the people of Israel, but also for all the people of all of humanity over the course of all time and history when he offered himself, and I would put in brackets after that, as the universal offering. So the self-giving of the man Christ Jesus, the willing self-giving, for he offered himself. He gave himself in Galatians 2.20. He offered himself in Hebrews 9.26 and Ephesians 5.2. I am willing, he said in Matthew 8. 
The self-giving of the man Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, testifies with glorious finality to the eternally gracious purpose and to the extent of the totality of God's love to bring this purpose to pass. Everything about Melchizedek has testified of a mediator who exceeds the bounds of Israel. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to do a little addendum on that someday, I hope. I hope to. Melchizedek, priest to the Most High God, not priest to the God of Israel, not priest to the God of a nation or the, na the God of a village or the God of a family, but to the Most High God. So Melchizedek, in his prefiguration of a priest to the Most High God, was, had a universal tint about him, but Melchizedek is a stage of the rocket that's no longer needed. He was needed up to a point. Now he's not. Levitical priests were needed up to a point. Now they're not. The law, the moral code of the law, was needed, but not for the purpose to bring justification. And so everything about Melchizedek testifies of a mediator who exceeds the boundaries of Israel. Israel's official priesthood, in fact, pointed to Melchizedek as a prefiguration of one whose mediation would be beneficial and even salvific, not only within all of Israel, but beyond the borders of Israel. So once again, we tip our cap to Melchizedek. But Melchizedek's prefiguration has run out of fuel. We see Jesus alone now. So verse 28, the law appoints men as priests who have inherent weakness. It's another reason why the commandment of genealogical descent was weak because it appoints men as priests who have inherent, and that means in the context, sinful weakness. But the word of the oath, that again is Hebrews, is referring of course to Psalm 110.4, the word of the oath appoints a son a son, this goes all the way back to Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. God who spoke at various times partially and provisionally in the prophets has in these last days spoken definitively in finality, with finality in a son. Here's it, here it is again at the end of chapter 7. The law appoints men as priests who have inherent weakness, but the word of the oath appoints a son. That means appoints the unique Son of God as the priest forever, who has been perfected, meaning perfected in his vocation as archpriest forever. No reference again to Melchizedek. That stage of the rocket is gone. This is rocket science by analogy. Now in closing, note the inclusion hen of a son and in 
the connection all the way back to Hebrews 1, 2. So the development of the homily is held in place and sustained from 1, 1, and 2 all the way through the end of this chapter. And the summary statement in Hebrews 8, 1 follows. So I think you'll see the development of the homily. Because Hebrews 8, 1 in which the, uh, the ultimate assertion of the entire homily is made. I like the way Lane put it again. He says this is the crowning affirmation so far of the entire epistle. It's not the whole thing, but it's the crowning affirmation so far. It's what I would call the ultimate assertion of the entire homily so far, summed up right here, Hebrews 8. Now the headline is another thing we could call it, the headline. Think of a newspaper with a giant headline. Now the headline, in fact I'll call it that because the word kafale is found in the root of this word which means head. Now the headline of all that we've been saying is that, we could even say is this, we have an archpriest of such a kind that he is seated on the right side of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This again connects us all the way back to the beginning of the homily in 1.3. The point of everything we've been saying, we have an archpriest of such a kind that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Melchizedek isn't seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus is. Melchizedek, the Melchizedek stage of the rocket. Picture a three-stage rocket. The first stage, the one that drops off first, is named Melchizedek. Melchizedek, see you later. Ends up in the debris in space or falls into the ocean if, he, if he's just meant to get the rocket propelled to a certain place before space is reached. Melchizedek, it's been nice knowing you. Thanks for the purpose that you fulfilled. Bye-bye. We see Jesus only now. We see Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have allowed us to adjust the lenses of the eyes of our heart in such a way as to see Jesus even more clearly, the one who far from you, far from God, in experience of God-forsakenness, experienced death for us all. Thank you, Father, that we have such a priest. We have such an archpriest in whom is embodied our so great salvation. Grant us grace that we may never neglect such a great salvation and such a great Savior, our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray it. Amen.